Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 20, Anglo-Saxon England in the 11th century. This week we're going to have a general run at the development of the Anglo-Saxon state and where it had got to with stuff like government, law, agriculture, trade and all that sort of thing. But before I start into all that fun, there's one other thing to do. You may remember that I had a really great idea a few weeks ago where I suggested that people might like to email in their questions. Well, that generated the same level of enthusiasm as the idea about people contributing their own podcasts to this series. Still, I did get one question a while ago from Ben, who asked for a summary of why we've ended up being called the English rather than the Land of the West Saxons or something like that. Being a keen History of Rome follower, I suspect that Ben's away on the grand tour of the History of Rome. But here's an answer to that question, or at least my guess at it, so that it can be there when he gets back. So in the 7th century, a king of Northumbria called Aldfrith styled himself Rex Anglorum, which is the same title that comes to mean the King of the English. But in this context, it was because he was calling himself King of the Angles. I guess you'll remember that there were three tribes of invaders originally, the Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes. Northumbria was settled by the Angles. Then Otha, King of Mercia, called himself Rex Anglorum a couple of times in the late 8th century. Offa certainly considered himself overlord of all the English kingdoms, but it's not impossible that he was again referring to himself as King of the Angles rather than King of all the English, though I suspect Offa would have been delighted to claim kingship over all the English as well. Egbert of Wessex was the man who overthrew Mercia's dominance and is often traditionally therefore thought of as the first King of the English, which I've always thought is a bit odd. I mean, why not Offa? Plus, actually, Egbert doesn't call himself King of the English. The furthest he goes is to call himself King of the West Saxons and also of Kent. So this is a man who really likes to be accurate and precise in his titles then. So the real start of the title King of the English comes with Alfred, in the sense that Alfred had the vision of a united England. I doubt he was the first, but his predecessors would have thought in terms of demonstrating their dominance over the other English kingdoms. For Alfred, it was about uniting in the face of Viking aggression. So he looked for a phrase that stressed the brotherhood of the English kingdoms. So he called himself King of the Anglo-Saxons, to paint a bigger vision than that of Wessex. And then at some point we move from King of the Anglo-Saxons to King of the English. What happens is that after Athelstan conquers Northumbria, he needs a phrase that stands for all the kingdoms of the English. Now he could have gone for King of the Anglo-Saxons, but I think he thought this would be divisive. And he would have been sensitive to the accusation of a West Saxon takeover, which in fact is largely what it is. So he used Rex Anglorum instead, and dropped the Saxon bit. So in summary, we become English as a result of a search for a word that would bind the English nations together after four centuries of division. Of course, this is only my view and doesn't necessarily represent the view of proper historians. Then I have one other piece of housekeeping, since I have to put right some hideous inaccuracies. 
So John kindly points out that I made not one, but two howlers last week, and I would hate you all to be made to look a fool by repeating them in front of your friends and losing face as a result. So here we go. William of Normandy was not Edward the Confessor's nephew, as I stupidly said, but in fact his cousin. Edward's mother, Emma, was sister to William's father, Robert. And secondly, Macbeth became King of Scots in 1040, not in 1041, as I said. I burn with shame. So, John, thank you very much for picking up on that, and I hope you'll continue to help me when I stumble and fall. So now to the main point of this week's podcast. It's been a while since we've looked at the Anglo-Saxon state, so I think it's high time we had a look at how society had changed through the reigns of Athelred, Canute and Edward. In fact, I think the last time we looked at this was the 7th century, which is 300 years ago. So what's changed since then? One of the things that's developed is the position of the king through the process of the unification of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms into one kingdom. Your English king was the envy of your average European king in the extent of his powers, since he'd managed to hold on to many powers that had been taken over by the European nobility elsewhere. There are a few examples of this, and one of them is justice. The rights of justice are an important measure of royal power because they defined where and how a king could intervene in the lives of their subjects. In many European kingdoms, the king's authority did not run within their nobles' lands. Each noble had become effectively a delegate of the king with full powers, having taken the king's powers to himself. It would be easy to exaggerate the differences, because it is true to say that there have been some movements in this direction in Anglo-Saxon England by the 11th century, and some thanes and religious institutions had been granted rights of justice by the king. Nobles like this because justice is just a great way to make money. It's profitable collecting fines and so on. So kings do begin to make grants of the right to administer justice, or sake and soak as it was known. This happened in the same way as they gave rights to land, because it financially rewarded their followers. But this movement is much more limited than it is in Normandy, for example. Not just in the number of thanes who held these rights, but also because Anglo-Saxon kings guarded some specific rights jealously, and they didn't delegate them. These are the big ones. So sake and soak did not include crimes like assault, a breach of the king's protection, military service or outlawry. Together these things would eventually become known as the king's peace. Incidentally, a major difference from 7th century Anglo-Saxon law had come about through the adoption of Christianity and the growth in power of the church. Breaches of the king's peace had begun to be seen as crimes against the community and breaches of a moral code. Some things, though, hadn't changed very much, and an example of that is the blood feud. For many centuries, kings had pushed the idea of a weregeld to persuade families to call off blood feuds and agree damages instead. You may remember these cropping up in the laws of Ena. Despite this, the blood feud still flourished. You might remember the story of Uhtred of Bamborough and Thurbrand the Hold, for example, and a blood feud there that ran for three generations. In Edward the Confessor's day, there's an example of Bishop Wolfstone having to actually work a miracle before a family would call off their blood feud. But anyway, I'm digressing from the royal authority theme, I realise, but while I'm on the subject of law, I should note that the late Anglo-Saxon kings were avid lawmakers. Edgar, Ethelred, Canute, all issue law codes. None of them are particularly innovative, but there are the very first indications of the jury system that would become such a cornerstone of the English judicial system. There's little doubt that the jury really becomes the core part of justice only with the Normans, but it is also true that the principles of the judgment of twelve men was also a recognised part of life in Anglo-Saxon England, probably derived from Scandinavian practice in the Danelaw. 
So Ethelred's code, issued at Wantage, specifically issued for the Dane law, contains the line, In each weapon tech, a court is to be held, and the twelve chief Thanes, together with the Reeve, are to come forward and swear on the relics. Okay, so this isn't a sworn jury, as in the later sense, since it's not this group who made up the judgment of guilt or innocence, but the principle has been established. Anyway, I'll stop digressing now. The main point I'm basically making is that the king had retained his key powers of judicial rights, unlike many on the continent. The Anglo-Saxon king's authority had also evolved from his 7th century equivalent. Once, the king had essentially been the strongest, best man for the job, primes inter pares, they called it, first amongst equals. But now he had acquired a mystic source of authority that was independent of his capability. Why else would anybody want to put up with Ethelred, for example? So the king was different. He was a descendant of Cherdich, Woden and Adam. He was anointed with the holy oil. Succession was limited to just the royal family, though still not necessarily to the son or the eldest son. There did remain an element of the elective principle from the very early days, though very much lessened. It would be impossible and probably thought improper for the king to rule without the help and advice of the Witem. But the king took that counsel where and when he chose. He wasn't constrained by any constitutional theory or procedure. We have not yet begun to see the process whereby the powers of the king become limited by law. Royal authority also benefited from the growth of central administration. There are problems in really understanding the extent of government administration since so much information was destroyed by the Normans, getting rid of those old, tatty, illegible papers in Old English lying around the office somewhere. But some things are evident and point to administrative organisation that was well advanced for the time. First off, the period had also seen the arrival of the royal writ. This started as an official announcement to the Earl and the Sheriff that a particular land grant had been made. For the first time, there was an official seal which made forgeries much more difficult, something which would have really annoyed the church who were past masters at forging charters and sealing a few acres here and there. For its time, this was a quick and efficient method of communication. And again, the Normans keep the writ going. The royal writ was to become the tool by which the king implemented his policies. The issuing of writs required the development of a chancery and a chancellor, i.e. government departments devoted to the creation and storage of official documents. We're pretty sure that Edward the Confessor would have had access to very detailed information about the royal estates and manors and their value. The creation of the 1086 Doomsday Book pretty much depended on them. And the creation of Doomsday was itself made possible by the Anglo-Saxon administrative system. Though it is worth balancing this image of administrative efficiency by mentioning some other less impressive practices, such as the fact that the treasury, for example, was essentially kept in a big box under the king's bed. So why had all these changes come about? It may simply be that your average Anglo-Saxon is a bit more of a control freak than your average continental. But more likely, it's because of the need to collect the Danegeld, for which an efficient and well-informed system was absolutely needed. And even after Edward ostentatiously dropped the Danegeld, he did continue to collect a land tag. Another subtle but important difference between Anglo-Saxon England and the continent is the greater communal basis of government, as opposed to the very personal basis of Norman government. So in a way, Anglo-Saxon was more like the situation today. So for example, the great officers of state, such as the earls, were not hereditary. They were essentially a job the king handed out, and then he could take away. Whereas Norman feudal society was essentially based on the king delegating his men or nobles to run a small part of the country for him, holding the land in his family with full hereditary rights in return for military service. 
Anglo-Saxon England's communal basis of government was also reflected in the arrival of a directly employed royal official, who could administer justice and collect taxes anywhere on any lord's land. This official, the Shire Reeve, had appeared somewhere around the time of Canute and Ethelred. The sheriff was the king's executive agent in the shires, taking on more and more of the old alderman's functions, collecting royal revenues and the profits of justice. He was part of the local gentry and a thane, so he understood local politics and the context, in a way that the earls, managing larger and larger territories, began to find very difficult. As a direct representative of the king, able to intervene directly in any lord's land in following up affairs of the king, he maintained royal power. He also became a counterweight to the potentially oppressive power of the large magnates, something which became ever more important after the conquest and the arrival of big, powerful feudal lords. One thing's for sure, William the Conqueror knew exactly how useful the Shire Reeves were, and he made damn sure he kept them on. In Normandy, these type of officials were called the Vicomte, and their powers had been taken over by the nobility. So the summary of all this is that the Anglo-Saxon king, despite being walked all over by various foreign powers, actually had more control than most of his counterparts. And many of these powers and administrative innovations survived the conquest, because William recognised a good thing when he saw it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It might be nice now to talk a bit more about the structure of English society and again how things have changed since the 7th century. One of the perennial and surprisingly passionate historical debates has been about the introduction of feudalism into England. The Victorians, who really did love the Anglo-Saxons, saw the Normans as imposing feudal oppression on the free Germanic folk-oriented Anglo-Saxon society, which took away the rights of the ordinary man. Nobody really thinks that anymore, but the summary is that although late Anglo-Saxon society had many of the elements of continental feudalism, the Norman conquest still brought a significant change. Part of the reason for that would be the nature of the conquest, which allowed William essentially to start from a blank piece of paper and impose a sort of ideal feudalism on England that actually went far beyond what was the practice even on the continent. It's all a rather technical argument, I've always thought, which I've always found a bit difficult to follow because some of the distinctions seem so very small. But the essence of it is that feudalism brings together two things. The first is a personal bond between two free men, a lord and an inferior, the latter called a vassal. The second is a vassal holding land granted to him by the lord, which can be taken away by the lord, and for which the vassal has to give specific services. This is not the structure of society in early Anglo-Saxon England, where essentially you have a load of thanes and churls who hold greater or smaller amounts of land themselves by their own right. Their rights to the land doesn't come from their lord. A thane holds his status as a lord because of who he is, not because of the land he holds. Now of course, as we've seen in previous episodes, the personal bond between lord and inferior did exist in an act of fealty. But in Anglo-Saxon times, however solemn the ceremony of fealty was, a thane was essentially free, in the words of the Doomsday Book, to go with his land to whatever lord he would. 
By Edward's time that was changing, but still had some way to go. There were many landowners who held land on loan and owed service for it. There were many who were given land in return for specific services, so we can see most of the key elements of feudalism in English society, such as that relationship between land and military service, the giving of fealty or homage to lords by inferiors in exchange for land or services, and the rights to deliver justice held by the lord rather than the king. The development of a hierarchical society, then, where man owed his loyalty to a lord rather than directly to a king. But in the end, the summary is that the difference was still significant. Late Anglo-Saxon society was still essentially built on a system of land held freehold by individuals. Practices much more like Norman feudalism were growing, but had some way yet to be the norm. 11th century Anglo-Saxon society was essentially a very highly structured society, dominated by the aristocracy, with an agricultural population organised to support the monarchy and nobility. The nobility was both lay and ecclesiastical. The thanes had originally been servants to great lords, so like Cherditch and the men who invaded southern England in the 6th century. The English word thane and knight essentially meant servant. By the 11th century, these servants had themselves become lords, with hereditary rank. There was a very specific definition of what you needed to become a thane, and it is explicit that a churl could rise to the status of a thane if he could achieve these things. A thane was clearly still a warrior. To inherit his land, a law of Canute specifies he'd have to give the king horses, helmets, a mail coat, shields and swords. But the key expectation was to have five hides of his own land, and he would be expected to have a hall and a church. In one sense, the divisions in late Anglo-Saxon society are very simple. King, thane, ecclesiastical lords, churls and slaves. But it's clear that there were many subdivisions. A surviving estate book gives a glimpse of these, from the relatively well-off geniat, who provided services such as escorting strangers to see the lord, to the jabor, who owed heavy service and held very little land. The number of slaves is difficult to calculate, but there were probably something around 25,000 slaves in England's population of around 1.5 million, so less than 2%, but estimates reach as high as 10%. The structure of landholding was also slowly changing, towards the manorial organisation that would typify the Middle Ages. Essentially, the manorial system was a result of landholding becoming more concentrated into the hands of a few thanes, and a larger proportion of churls who didn't hold their own land, but were given land by a lord in return for service, and were therefore less free. As we've said before, the history of Anglo-Saxon England is a steady progression of churls from a free status in the early state to a much and progressively less free state by 1066. So the kind of standard model of agriculture that had evolved by the 11th century was typified by Mercia and central Wessex. Here, agriculture would be organised around the village rather than an individual farm. The land surrounding the village would be open with very few permanent hedges. It would be organised into two big fields to allow for land rotation and organised into dispersed strips. The typical farmer would own a yard land of about 30 acres, though that would vary wildly. It's likely that there would have been a lot of common usages of land and resources, such as cooperative ploughing and shared use of woodland. The growth of a manorial structure was most effective in this kind of area. The manor essentially used the same organisation. But the land would be divided into the lord's own land, called the domain, and the land he granted out to the churls or peasants. His domain would be worked by his presence according to the service they owed him.
But the thing to stress was how complex society was, because landholding very much related to the culture of the different kingdoms and settlements. So the Dane law had a completely different structure. Here lordship was much more about rights than it was about landholding. The thane was more about a Celtic chieftain, owed tribute from his people, but not owning or handing out land himself. In Kent, landholding was around the hamlet, not a large village. So the old Jutish territories were structured around a series of smaller individual fields, each farmed by a family or group of kinsmen, rather than these big community-oriented uh, open land. There was little specialisation in the cultivation of crops because, of course, transporting produce was slow and difficult, and the level of internal trade relatively low. So most manors, farms and villages would take an integrated approach to what they grew. So corn had to be grown everywhere, even in parts of the country where the land itself was mostly suitable for pasture. Woodland played a crucial part of each community, not just as a source of wood, but also for pigs who would be kept there. Woodland would often not be the high woodland we're used to with big trees. Trees would usually be coppiced or pollarded, because this allowed multiple uses of the same land, i.e. if you've got pollarded trees, you can also use the land around it for pasture. Warfare had also made an impact on Anglo-Saxon society, just as it had on the continent. The continental response had been that of the feudal society, with land granted by the king in return for military service, a society that focused resources into the equipping of an elite group of warriors. And this was because war had become much more expensive. Warriors now needed mail, helmet, horse and sword, where once the sword had been the preserve of only a very few. Although this is the traditional image of the Norman knight, the English faced exactly the same pressure. The Huskarl was every bit as much the professional warrior as the Norman knight. It's just that the Anglo-Saxons found a slightly different solution. So a community had to provide one man for the third from every five hides of land. The third was still a communal army, not a feudal one, but it also recognised the need for a professional warrior class. But apart from this, things hadn't changed a lot in Anglo-Saxon England. It's probably best to talk about the differences in warfare between Anglo-Saxon and Normandy when we look at 1066, but the main point is what had not happened in England. So that is two things, really. There was no tradition of an integrated army of archers, infantry and cavalry working together. And the horse was still used as a mode of transport rather than for use in battle. As far as the economy was concerned, the mid-9th to mid-11th century was a period of rapid growth of both population and economy. With all those Vikings wandering around, this seems an extraordinary thing, but apparently it's so. The large population and trade also meant a growth in towns. By the 11th century, it was not just London that could claim to be a proper town, rather than a defensive borough. A basic model had been established which many centres shared. The typical county town of Edward's time has a marketplace and a mint. It was enclosed with walls ramparts, it was divided into fenced tenements, and it had open fields and meadows shared out amongst its inhabitants. But let's be clear about the size of these towns, we're not talking about teeming metropolises. It's likely that there are about 20 towns with populations over a 1,000. We don't know the population of the largest, i.e. London, but it's estimated to be around ten to 12,000. Other large towns would have been York at 9,000, Norwich at six to 7,000, so sizes that today would be seen as pretty small places. I think that's probably enough on the Anglo-Saxon state for one episode. You've probably borne enough. There's one more thing I thought I should mention, though, which is the place names thing, which has been a constant companion throughout the last 20 episodes, during which we've gone through Anglo-Saxon history. There's always a bit of local colour added by understanding what the place name tells you about the history of a place. 
In our history, the main thing has been as an aid to understanding the settlement patterns of early Saxon invaders and then the Vikings. So from what language does the place name derive? But it can also tell you something about the original settlement. So I have some brief and very common examples and then places to go to if you're interested in finding out more. One of the most famous Saxon examples are places with the ending ing, which means the people of. You see this one all over, so Reading means riders people, Hastings means Haster's people. Another ending is Ham or Tun, which stands for town. The Scandinavian equivalent of the word town gives an easy guide to the areas of Viking settlement, so the equivalent to the Saxon ending Ham is the word ending Thorpe. There are loads of these, and it's a lot of fun to know more and recognise things as you go about. My personal favourite is a place not a million miles away from where I was brought up, called Breeden on the Hill. When you realise that Bree is the Celtic for hill, and Dun is Anglo-Saxon for hill, you quickly appreciate that a hill is the main feature about this place, since the name translates, of course, as Hill Hill on the Hill. So I've put two websites on my blog at historyofengland.typepad.com. The first is a general introduction someone's done to give you a start. The second is the official website of the English Place Name Society at Nottingham University, where you can search for full or parts of place games, and you can just play all night if that's what you want to do. A couple more general observations before we finish on this episode. Firstly, it's good to have some sort of perspective about the life of normal people. Basically, all the big political stuff would have been pretty much irrelevant to almost everyone. The likelihood of being in the way of an army or the king would be infinitesimally small. Secondly, there's been a variety of debate throughout history about the general state of Anglo-Saxon England just before its demise, including a view that it was decadent and on its last legs anyway. The truth is that Anglo-Saxon England was not so very far from the mainstream of European states. It had its idiosyncrasies and weaknesses. So, for example, the strength of a few large noble families was politically dangerous, its military was behind the times, and its church disorganised and not in line with continental reforms. Conversely, the king's power was much more substantial, its unity and administrative capability greater than any in Europe. In the end, the issue for Anglo-Saxon England and what happened in 1066 was that so much still depended on the character and capability of the king himself. So thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of England. Have a great week and hopefully talk to you next week. Bye.